Jesus had quite a few things to say to hypocrites, didn't he? That's what we're going to be talking about today, but first let's bow our heads and hearts for a word of prayer. Our Father, we thank you for the opportunity to come to your word this morning. And we know, Lord, that it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And we ask, Lord, this morning, we ask that we would behold Christ in your word, in order, Lord, that we may see him as the greatest treasure. In his name we pray. Amen. If I were to ask you, why are you here this morning? What would you say? Why are you here this morning? Today we're going to continue in our study of the book of Zechariah. We'll be in chapter 7. But I don't want us to start with the book of Zechariah just yet. If you want to go to the book of Zechariah, it's the second book from the end of the Old Testament. But I don't want to start there just yet. If you have a Bible with you, uh, either turn to, or if, if you have it like on a tablet or your phone or whatever, turn your, your Bible on and go to the book of Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. And as you're finding your place in Luke chapter 18, I just want to share something with you that the Lord spoke through the prophet Amos in the Old Testament. In the book of Amos, God's, God says to the people of Israel, he says, I hate I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen." And you might ask yourself when you, when you read that or when you, when you hear that, when you hear such words with such crushing weight behind them, you might think, how could God ever say such a thing? Why would he say that to even his own people? That's who he was speaking to, his own people. He was the one who had instructed them to have all these things. Seven feasts, in fact, are laid out in Leviticus chapter 23. And here God is saying, I could not possibly hate your feasts more. I hate, I despise your feasts. They were supposed to assemble for worship and for instruction, and God says to them, I take no delight in your assemblies. By the way, if you were to translate this into the the New Testament, the word that gets translated in the New Testament is ecclesia, for assemblies, which literally means called out ones. We translate it into English as church. He says, I take no delight in that. He instructed them to offer burnt offerings and grain offerings, but here he tells them in very straightforward language, I will not accept them. He had instructed them to make peace offerings of fattened animals, and here he tells them, I'm not even going to look at them. In the Psalms, God instructs us to to sing sing to the Lord a new song, and here he tells them, take the noise of your songs elsewhere. What's going on here? Has God changed his mind in what he wants from his people? No, God doesn't change. So it's not that God has changed his mind and suddenly he's telling them not to do the things that he had told them to do previously. The question that we 
must always ask ourselves when we read stories of God rebuking, chastising, disciplining someone, the question we must always ask ourselves is this. Is he talking about us? Is he talking about me? Do I do the things that he is angry at somebody else doing? Jesus harshly rebuked people from time to time as well. And when we read that, it should force us to examine ourselves and make sure that he's not talking about us. Now, if you've got your Bibles open to the 18th chapter of Luke, we read a parable in this chapter that Jesus used to rebuke some people. And I believe that this parable will help us not only understand what was going on in the book of Amos, but it'll also help us to understand what's going on in Zechariah chapter 7. So starting in Luke chapter 18, verse 9, we read this. He, speaking of Jesus, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Is he talking about us? That's the question we have to ask ourselves. Is he talking about us? Would he, if he were to to drop in today, if he were to come in here today, would he tell the same story to you and me? I would hope not, but let's consider the point that he's trying to make. Jesus commonly used parables to illustrate profound and difficult truths for us. And there are lots of truths that are communicated in, in this one parable, in this, in this passage. But I want us to focus just on the central truth that Jesus is getting at here. And that is that there is worship that God will accept, and there is worship that he will not accept. There are no other options. In this parable, he introduces us to two hypothetical characters, a Pharisee and a tax collector, each of whom represents a different type or a different category of worship. And there's a lot of irony in this parable because we'd expect that, you know, the worship of the Pharisee, you know, he, he, he obviously saw himself as very righteous and others also perceived him as being extremely religious, extremely righteous. We would expect his worship to be accepted and the worship of the tax collector who was perceived by the people of the day as being kind of scum of the earth, a sinner to say the least, we'd expect his worship to not be accepted by God. And yet, the parable ends by revealing that the opposite is true. The worship of this self-righteous religious person is rejected by God, and the worship of the sinner is accepted by God. 
So there's a lot of irony there. But the question that the irony forces us to ask is, what's the difference between the two? Well, let's look at the Pharisee first. He goes to the temple, he walks right in, stands by himself, and he prays aloud, boasting of his personal accomplishments, boasting of his personal adherence to all of these religious rituals. But who is he praying to? The indication here is that he, he's, he's not praying to God. He's praying maybe to some other God, but most likely I'd say he's praying to himself. It's a stretch to say that he's even praying. It's more like he's just reading off his personal resume. And what about the tax collector? The tax collector goes toward the temple, but he stops short. He won't even go in. He doesn't feel worthy to even go in. He feels so unworthy, he won't even turn his eyes to the heavens as he prays. And his prayer is short. It's not drawn out. It's very succinct, and it reflects a brokenness, a contrite heart. In regards to his sin, he simply says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus ends this parable with what must have been a real shocker, a real surprise to the people he told the story to, whom Luke describes as people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. He ends it by telling us that the Pharisee, that between the Pharisee and the tax collector, only the tax collector was justified. Only the tax collector was forgiven by God. And if worship unto God consisted of nothing more than externals, things that you can observe, things that you can see, doing outwardly what God has instructed us to do outwardly, if that was all that worship consisted of, then maybe the Pharisee would have been justified. If only we could put our confidence, put our faith in a checklist of external behaviors, like going to church, like praying, reading our Bibles, fasting, reading a daily devotional, singing, singing hymns, singing them very loudly. Well, Okay, this, this Pharisee could have been justified and the ritualistic person could be considered deeply, deeply devoted to God if this were the case. And make no mistake about it, you and I face this temptation to do exactly that, to do the same thing that the Pharisee was doing. You and I also face the temptation to conform outwardly without being transformed inwardly. So if I were to ask you, what are you doing here this morning? Why are you here this morning? How would you answer that question? Unfortunately, if it has anything to do with, with, with just externals, if your answer is something like, well, it's just what I do every Sunday morning, if your answer is, well, I don't know, I didn't have anything else to do. That's not what God's looking for. In fact, if your primary reason is centered around externals, then you're not religious at all. You are just a routine ritualist. In this parable, the Pharisee has such pride, such confidence in his external actions. He has actually, by his pride, by his 
adherence to the externals, but not doing anything about his heart. He has alienated himself from God, and he's prevented himself from drawing near to God in any type of meaningful way. The tax collector, on the other hand, he's repentant. He's humbled by the realization that he is a wretched sinner who is the farthest thing away from deserving God's mercy. And so he realizes, my greatest hope I am the most undeserving of. And God is pleased by that. So what's the difference between true and false worship? Between worship that God accepts and worship that God turns away from? It's the heart. It's the heart of the individual. Jesus is telling us that that's what makes the difference between ritual and righteousness. And so with this understanding fresh in our minds, go ahead and turn to the book of Zechariah now. Chapter 7, where we will see that God has always been disgusted. He has always rejected ritualistic routine. He has always rejected the act of just going through the motions externally. He has never accepted anyone's boasting in their own goodness. As we read in, in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7, man looks on the outward appearance, right? But God looks on the heart. And it's easy for us to overlook that. It's easy for us to, to forget that. But as we'll see here in Zechariah chapter 7, God is more than happy to remind his people that he looks upon the heart. That is uh, more important than the externals, more important than the actions. God is looking at the motivation, the driving force behind our actions, behind the externals. So Zechariah chapter 7, we'll start with verses 1 to 3. We read, in the fourth year of King Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah on the fourth day of the ninth month, which is Kislev. Now the people of Bethel had sent Sherezar and Regemelech and their men to entreat the favor of the Lord, saying to the priests of the house of the Lord of hosts and the prophets, should I weep and abstain in the fifth month if I, as I have done for so many years? I want us to see exactly what's going on here. This is two months short of two years since the night when Zechariah had the eight visions, which are recorded in the first uh, six chapters of his book. And that was in the 11th month of the second year of King Darius. Now we're fast forwarding almost two years to the fourth day of the ninth month of the fourth year of King Darius. And there was a significant truth that was revealed to us through Zechariah's series of visions. And that was that the work of God would be completed by the power of the Spirit working within his people. And a significant part of the work that that was referring to was the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem. And at this point, here we are almost two years later, at this point, scholars believe that the work of rebuilding the temple is it's well underway. It's probably about halfway done. But the chapter opens with a revelation of a dilemma that the people are facing. So they send a delegation of 
men to inquire of the priests in Jerusalem as to whether or not they should continue mourning and fasting and remembering in sorrow the invasion and the, and the destruction of Jerusalem 74 years ago or uh, more than that, add, the, add another 16 years, 90 years ago almost. So let us remember that the people that we're talking about, they'd been sent into exile by the Babylonians for 70 years. And during that time, a tradition began in which the people would fast four times a year. The Lord had only instructed them to observe one fast, and that was uh, on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. So they had only one fast that was given to them by the Lord. But when Jerusalem was destroyed, the people began fasting four times a year as a means of remembering what had happened. Now they practiced fasting in the fourth and in the fifth and in the seventh and in the tenth months. So now the people are wondering if they should fast in the fifth month when they would traditionally fast to remember the burning down and the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. And with the temple being about halfway done, what do you think they're feeling inside? They're feeling pretty excited. They're, 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 they're being blessed by God. God is doing his work through them by his power. Progress is being made. God is restoring them as he had promised. And now they're conflicting because in the midst of this excitement that they're feeling, this upcoming fast was supposed to be a time of great sorrow. And apparently, nobody was exactly sure how to answer this question. At the very least, no answer was, uh, was recorded for us right away. Instead, this is what we read as we continue, verses 4 to 7. Then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me, Say to all the people of the land and the priests, When you fasted and mourned in the fifth month and in the seventh for these 70 years, was it for me that you fasted? And when you eat and when you drink, do you not eat for yourselves and drink for yourselves? Were not these the words that the Lord proclaimed by the former prophets when Jerusalem was inhabited and prosperous with her cities around her and the south and the lowland were inhabited? So the word of the Lord of hosts comes to Zechariah with a response. Maybe he just wasn't going to, he didn't want to wait for somebody else to say something before he had something to say. He comes to Zechariah with the answer. Who, who is this, by the way? Who is the word of the Lord of hosts? This is Jesus. This is the pre-incarnate Christ. And you might expect that if God shows up on the scene with something to say, he'd give a really straightforward answer. But that's not how he handles this situation. Instead of giving just a, a black and white answer, he turns the tables and he asks some of his own questions to the people. He says, you know those times when you would traditionally have your self-imposed fasts? Were you doing those fasts for me or were you doing it for you? The directness of this question portrays a tone that I think answers the questions. The answer is no, the people were not fasting for the Lord. They were doing it for themselves. This tradition was completely self-focused. The second question is equally blunt. It says, when you eat and drink, don't you do that for yourselves too? What's God doing here? He's holding up a mirror. 
And he's saying, look at yourselves. Look at your hearts. Look at what I see in your hearts. He's showing them their hypocrisy. He's showing them their sin. He's showing them what's going on in the depths of their hearts. And it's not that their actions, that this, this fast was necessarily a bad thing. It's that their motivations were wrong. Their motivations were hypocritical. In one way or another, their adherence to this tradition of fasting gave them reason to feel like they were good religious people. Maybe the central problem with religious hypocrisy is that it can so easily be used as a justification for boasting in oneself and making a certain impression on others as a means of receiving the praise or the respect of people. These people were proud of their traditional fasts. Their their adherence to this tradition was an outward sign of their deep devotion. But this is where traditionalism can become very dangerous if it's not kept in check. It's a sign of devotion, but the question is, to what is it a sign of devotion? To whom is it a sign of devotion? And God is showing them that their devotion was unto themselves. Is he talking to us? God had been telling the people through the prophets for generations that he was not impressed with their sacrifices or with their solemn assemblies, with their gatherings, or any other outward signs of religiosity so long as they were being done in a self-glorifying manner for a self-glorifying reason. Even back in 1 Samuel, God had told them, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? That's a rhetorical question. The implied answer is no. He says, behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. See, God wanted more than their outward religiosity. He wanted their hearts. He wanted their hearts. He wanted their obedience to be joyful rather than coerced. He wanted them to listen to him. And when we, when we do this, you see, outward religiosity will follow. Good works will follow the heart that's listening to the Lord. Works of righteousness will follow, and they'll follow for the right reasons. They'll follow because of faith in God and nothing else. Religious traditions are fine as long as the heart, the motivation, the reason you're carrying out whatever the tradition is, is right. But once the heart is pursuing something other than glorifying and pleasing God, once the heart is driven by a desire to please self or to to impress others, rather than please God, rather than glorify God, God is not pleased and cannot accept those actions. What looks like a good fruit is going to be rotten to the core. 
to offer unto God an action that is ultimately self-glorifying is to mock God, and God will not be mocked. At the root of this issue, this isn't just an attempt to glorify oneself. It's actually worshiping oneself. And that's idolatry. That's what's going on when we do the right thing outwardly, supposedly unto God, but we're doing it for the wrong reasons. And God has always despised idolatry. Thinking back to what we read in Amos, that's why God said that he hated the feasts and assemblies and songs and sacrifices that were being offered to him by his people. It's not that the outward stuff was wrong necessarily, it's that it was driven by impure motives. This is exactly why Jesus said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness. Is he talking about us? These were people who were deeply religious, and externally they were, they were doing all the right things for the wrong reasons. These were people who prayed. These were people who studied the Bible. These were people who could recite large portions of Scripture verbatim, word for word, and who upheld all of these sacred traditions. But for what purpose? What was their motivation for doing these things? So see, this isn't to say that all tradition is bad, necessarily. Like all things, we test it against Scripture. And, and we examine our hearts. We, we look at our motives. The truth is, it's, it's deeper than just doing it because it's a tradition. It's deeper than just what we do externally. God is working to transform us. And by his grace and by his loving kindness, he's working to turn us into a people who not only do the right things, but we do them for the right reasons. God's grace is working to turn us from people who worship ourselves and do things to primarily glorify ourselves into people who are concerned first and foremost with glorifying and pleasing God in all that we do. His grace is working to turn us into people who do more than just go through the motions as a means of serving ourselves in some way. His grace is working to turn us into a people whose greatest desire is to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice unto the Lord. Let's continue. Verses 8 to 10. And the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Render true judgments. Show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor, and let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. The grace of God is not only working to turn us from being a people who seek to glorify ourselves into people who seek to glorify God alone, the grace of God is also 
working to transform us from people who are desperately, desperately inclined to pursue and practice ritualism into people who pursue and practice righteousness. Here we see the word of the Lord Jesus offering a a contrast to what he had said in the previous passage. In the previous passage, he was saying, in essence, you've been doing all these things for generations, and it needs to stop. Their fathers had refused to listen to the prophets, and they'd been doing the same thing. Their fathers' fathers, their fathers' fathers' fathers, and goes right on down the line. This was a generational thing, ignoring what God had revealed, re- uh, ignoring what God was calling them to do through the prophets. That's why they went into exile to the Babylonians. And God is saying, cut it out. That was an implicitly negative instruction. He's saying there, don't do that. This is going to be positive instruction. So he said, don't do that. So do what? He gives them four things that reflect right motivation and real righteousness. First, he says, render true judgments. What does that mean? It means treat everyone fairly. Let justice, let true justice prevail among you. What prevents making true judgments? What prevents justice from being carried out? I'd say a big thing is preferring some people over others. You know, you, you scratch the back of someone because it benefits you in some way. Partiality renders justice corrupt, so God is telling them to practice impartiality toward others. And this pleases God because it demonstrates that they wouldn't be making judgments based on what they could personally gain. They would be making judgments without bias because their desire was first and foremost to honor and glorify God in all that they do. Secondly, he says, show kindness and mercy to one another. And this term kindness, it's about more than just being a nice person. It's about more than just doing nice things for people. You hear about people doing random acts of kindness. That's not what he's talking about here. The word that gets translated into kindness here is the Hebrew word chesed, which is the same Hebrew word that gets translated elsewhere as loving kindness as it, re- as it relates to God's faithful, compassionate, covenant love for his people. And so basically what he's saying there is love each other the same way that I have loved you. Third, he says, do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor. The widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, the poor, these are all people who have great, great needs, and they are the most vulnerable people in a society. And God is instructing them not to take advantage of those who are powerless. Fourth, and finally, he says, let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. And this ties in very closely with the previous point, being a people who are forgiven, who have been shown mercy and compassion by God, that should motivate us to forgive others and show mercy and compassion to others. So why does God give them this list? 
Why does he name off these four things? To show them the type of fruit that righteousness bears. They aren't going to be doing these things in order to be God's people. They are going to be doing these things because they are God's people. We don't obey in order to be accepted by God. We obey because we are accepted by God. So first he showed them the bad fruit. Now he's showing them the good fruit. You see, the truth is that we can be outwardly very, very moral people. We like people to be moral, right? And, and behavior modification can teach somebody how to be moral. And yet, inwardly, we can be completely separated from God, even if we are extremely moral externally. You can do all the right things You can be a good moral person on the surface, but the question isn't so much what are you doing as it is why are you doing what you're doing? Now, maybe you're thinking, as we go through this, maybe you're thinking, okay, so what if I don't feel like doing the right thing? What if I don't feel like doing the right thing? Am I I just supposed to do it anyway and be a hypocrite? Should I do it even if I don't feel like it? What am I supposed to do? And that's a really good question. What are we supposed to do when we know what is right, when we know what is just, when we know what is good in the eyes of the Lord, but we don't feel like doing it? This is where the rubber meets the road, so to speak. This is where it becomes easy to either be a hypocrite or just to abuse the grace of God and and not do the right thing, but just sin instead? Let me flesh this question out a little bit. I, I started our study here today by asking you guys why you're here today. Why are you here today? But let's just say that your that your honest answer, if you were to just be completely straightforward with me, let's let's just say hypothetically that your answer would be, well, I really would have rather slept in. I'd really rather not be here. But I know that being here is the right thing to do, so here I am. So would it have been better, because you didn't feel like coming to church, would it have been better to just stay home and sleep in, or would it have been better to not, uh, not go with what your heart wanted to do, but do the right thing anyway? What are you supposed to do? And so the dilemma is there. Do you do the right thing, go to church for the wrong reason, traditionalism? Or do you neglect to come to church since you wouldn't want to do the right thing for the wrong reason? Hmm, that's a tough question, isn't it? With a very simple answer. You do the right thing. You do the right thing. But before you do that, before you do anything, once you realize that you don't feel like doing the right thing, you stop whatever you're doing. And you pray, and you beg, and you plead with God to show you what is going on in your heart that's preventing you from having the right motivation. You beg him to show it to you, to to reveal it to you, until you know what it is. And once you know what it is, you turn from it. You repent of it, so that... You can do the right thing for the right reason. 
Pretty simple answer, right? And yet, it can be pretty complicated. The grace of God is working in us to turn us from people who seek to glorify ourselves into people who seek to glorify God alone. The grace of God is working to transform us from people who are desperately inclined to pursue and practice ritualism into people who pursue and practice righteousness. And finally, the grace of God is working in us to turn us into people who will listen to and obey the Lord. Let's continue, verses 11 to 14. But they refused to pay attention, talking about the forefathers who ignored the prophets, but they refused to pay attention and turned a stubborn shoulder and stopped their ears that they might not hear. They made their hearts diamond hard, lest they should hear the law and the words that the Lord of hosts had sent by his spirit through the former prophets. Therefore, great anger came from the Lord of hosts. As I called, and they would not hear, so they called, and I would not hear, says the Lord of hosts. And I scattered them with a whirlwind among all the nations that they had not known. Thus the land they left was desolate, so that no one went to and fro, and the pleasant land was made desolate. In this passage, Zechariah is referring to the way that Judah, in years past, had ignored God. This was before the Babylonian exile. He says they did three things. They refused to pay attention to God, they turned a stubborn shoulder to God, and they quit listening to God. Parents, how much do you love it when you're talking to your kid and they turn around and walk away in the middle of you giving them instructions? How much do you love that, parents? Scale of one to ten, like negative ten, right? You hate that. Most parents, by the way, kids, this is a lesson for you. Most parents don't take that type of thing too lightly. And yet Zechariah is saying here that this is how the people treated God. How do we become hard-hearted toward God? How do we turn the pleasant land, the providential blessings that he has provided his people with into a desolate land? How do we do that? Well, I guess you could start by just stop listening to God. Ignore him. And you don't pray, and if you do, you do it with the wrong motivation. You don't study your Bible, and if you do, you do it with the wrong motivation. You don't go to church, and if you do, you do it with the wrong motivation. You do it because there's something in it for you other than just worshiping God and serving his bride, the church. How do you grow hard-hearted toward God? Don't even think about this sermon as soon as you walk out the door. Don't ever think about this sermon again. Just keep your faith in a hypocritical checklist, doing the right things for the wrong reasons or not doing the right things at all. And I promise you, within no time, you will grow hard-hearted toward God. In no time flat. How do you avoid becoming hard-hearted toward God? How do you avoid making the proverbial land desolate? You examine yourself and you repent regularly. You look inwardly at your motivations, your desires, your inclinations, and you repent of the wrong regularly. 
You make sure that you're doing the right things and that you're not just doing the right things externally, but you're doing them for the right reasons. You make sure that you're doing it because you love the Lord more than you love your sin. You make sure that you desire to glorify God and have no desire to glorify yourself. And when you find that you have a desire to glorify yourself or to satisfy yourself by sinning, you repent. You don't do it. You learn to obey the Lord not because, not just because it's the right thing to do, but because your desire, your greatest desire, is to please and honor Him. And when you don't, you turn from it. The Lord Jesus desired nothing more than to please the Father. And he demonstrated perfect obedience to the Father, always doing the Father's will. Even when it was incredibly, incredibly difficult. Paul says to the Philippians of Jesus, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That cross was the price of his people's disobedience, of their sin. Jesus always did the right things. And not once did he do the right things for the wrong reasons. He always did the right things for the right reasons. Only he has lived the perfect sinless life. Only he, therefore, is qualified to be our substitute in bearing the wrath of God against our sin. And that's what he did. On the cross, Jesus took the sins of everyone who would place saving faith in him. He took those sins upon himself, and in exchange, he imputed his own righteousness to his people in order that we would be reconciled unto God. That's like taking the nastiest piece of garbage you can possibly imagine and trading it with somebody for the finest, most valuable diamond in the universe. If you have never put saving faith in Christ, I implore you to be reconciled to God through faith in Christ. You want to talk about doing the right thing for the right reason? The greatest good that you can possibly do is to place saving faith in Jesus Christ today. Because tomorrow is not guaranteed. And you do it for the right reason. You do it because he's worthy. You do it because he is Lord. Don't trust in your own goodness. That is a one-way ticket to hell. Trusting in your own goodness. If you will not put faith in Christ, listen to me, if you will not put faith in Jesus Christ, the best that you could possibly hope to be and when you stand before God is a hypocrite. That is the best you could possibly be. But for those who have placed saving faith in Christ, he promises forgiveness and eternal life. And so I beg you, all of you, to live your lives 
in the shadow of the cross. Staying near to it, keeping it as a constant reality and reminder in your mind that if you have placed saving faith in Christ, you've been bought at such a high price. So may that reality drive us to do more than just do the right things, but to do the right things for the right reasons. To do the right things because our desire is to honor and glorify Jesus Christ, our Lord, with our lives. That is how we avoid becoming hard-hearted toward God. And that, that is what makes our obedience joyful and pleasing to God rather than hypocritical. Let's pray. Oh God, as we think of the implications of your word, it would be so easy for us to say, far be it from me to be a hypocrite. And yet, Lord, we confess to you that every one of us Even sometimes when we do the right things, we do them for the wrong reasons. It's easy to be a hypocrite. It's easy to do the right things for the wrong reasons or just to do the wrong things. And we thank you, Lord, for your grace. We thank you that it covers more sin than we could possibly imagine, than we could commit but teach us not to abuse it. Teach us not to take it for granted. Teach us to be a people who do the right things for the right reasons because we desire you. We desire you. We desire to glorify you, to please you. Father, open the eyes of our hearts that we may see the depths of our hearts that we may see our motivations. And by your spirit, give us the strength, give us the power to turn away from those things, to turn away from improper motivations, that we may be fully pleasing to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us, and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today, and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deep.